I pray that you have been blessed, not just so far this morning, but also this past week. As you think back on the previous handful of days, you were able to see how God has revealed himself even a little bit to you, that you've been able to recognize how good God is and how he blesses us, how he sustains us, and then even in those moments where maybe we were stressed or bothered or concerned, God is still there. And I would say he's even there a little bit more closely in those times. We're going to get into our sermon today. This, this does continue in our series that we have been looking at from the beginning to the end, as we've considered in Genesis and the lessons that we can learn in the Bible's first book, and not just that, but how it applies to us today and how it carries us forward until the end when Christ comes to take us home. There's a connection between the then, the now, and the will be. It's not only relegated to the past or to, to humanity in bygone eras. It's very relevant today, even from the first verses, the first chapter in God's book. We're going a little bit out of order just because today is communion. So next Sabbath, we will pick up right from where we left off, which is the second part of day six in creation, the creation of mankind. And today, though, we're going to look at a world without sin. A world without sin. When I was trying to think of a good way of introducing this, I, I really have really have two, and I couldn't decide which one, so you get both. When I was a child, I often rode with my dad, who, who was a therapist and had several contracts all over the, the eastern, northeastern portion of Arkansas, and I would ride with him as we would go to the development centers or to the schools or sometimes on his home health visits. And some of those drives were a little bit closer, maybe 20 or 30 minutes away. Some of them were a little bit longer, an hour or so. Well, there were several of these trips when we would listen to music. We eventually ended up in audiobooks, and that's how I kind of learned to like audiobooks. But we had a lot of music early on, uh, just various artists and, and various songs. Well, then there was this one that he would play somewhat frequently. And it was mostly instrumental. It had a little bit of a Western theme to it, a little bit of a, a Mexican theme to it. I'm like, oh, well, that's, that's kind of neat. I don't mind that. And, you know, what is, what is this, Dad? Oh, this is songs from a movie that I watched uh, many years ago, a little bit before your time. And, oh, okay, well, what, what is it? Because I, that's kind of catchy, and it seems like there's this one uh, particular chord that plays... Uh, every so often. And he goes, well, this is from, this is the soundtrack from a movie called The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Have, have any of us heard of that movie? It's, it's, well, it's, it's fairly famous. It's fairly well known. Uh, Clint Eastwood I, was the, one of the stars. Um, and, and I've only seen it once, so if my memory is foggy, we can, we can correct me afterwards. But from what I remember is that it essentially follows three men. Uh, the story revolves around three men. The end of the movie, you end up with that, uh, that Mexican standoff, as they say, where each of the three men are 
aiming their guns at each other, and who's going to pull first? How is it going to end? It was very tense. It was very exciting, I, I guess. Um, but the good, the bad, and the ugly, and, and as best as I can recall, that's kind of the description of these men as you go through. You had, you had one that was the good guy, the, the upholder of justice, the one who was more morally and ethically pointing north. You had the, the evil, you know, the, the bad guy, and then you had one, I don't understand why the ugly, maybe unattractive, maybe his character was a little less pretty than, than the other two. Um, and so you had the good the bad, and the ugly, one of the, one of the greatest westerns ever done. So I'm like, okay, well, we can, we can consider the good, the bad, and the ugly as we, as we think about how God's creation ends from our Scripture reading today, when God looked at all that He had made, and it was very good. Now that's just an emphasis um, a highlight, the exclamation point on something that God had said all along the way. God made light, and He separated the light from the darkness, and He looked at the light, and He said, it is good. Then the firmament and the water separated, and the end of the day too, and God says, it is good. And then that repeats five times until we get to the end of day six, and then God says, it is very good. So in other words, we could say something like, when God creates, it is only good, there is no bad or ugly. And what does it mean for God to declare everything as good? What is the good that the Bible is talking about? Why would God say that, and what can we learn from that word, from that declaration over creation. When God surveys something and He calls it good, what does that encapsulate? Well, one, because of the structure of the Hebrew and the repeating of God saw and it was good, because that's repeated. He looks and it's good. He looks and it's good. We know that goodness in, includes aesthetic beauty. When you have the connection of viewing something and calling it good, there's a beauty to it. Well, I believe God is a God of beauty. I believe that what God makes doesn't have bad and ugly in it. When God first formed uh, the trees and the flowers, we didn't have to worry about frost killing something and limbs breaking off or flowers wilting. When God made the, the hills and the fields. There weren't sinkholes that destroyed it, and there weren't the jagged, rocky, sharp-pointed kinds of mountains that we have today. We believe that was a result of the flood. When God makes something, there's not a deformity to it. It's arranged, and it blooms, and there's life, and the colors were vibrant and appealing to the eyes. It was beautiful. We know that God is a God of beauty because also in the instruction of first of the tabernacle and then the temples, God blessed particular craftsmen for their craft so they could not only make what it was to be functional, but also for beauty. That's the gold. That's the, the ornate kind of decorations. God intends 
the beautiful things around us to cause our thoughts to go heavenward. Beauty, we think of high and lofty things. That's why I like the flowers. That's why I like spring. Spring to me is very beautiful when I think of God a little bit more. What else does the good mean when God declares it all good? Well, we talked about in, in, in one of our earlier sermons, our parts of, of the series, that when God created, He doesn't just arbitrarily make something. He has a purpose for it. Light and dark separates day and night. It lets us know what how to see and where to go, and that then He populated the light and the dark with our heavenly bodies for direction and, and constellations and the sun and the moon. There's a purpose to it. There's a purpose to filling the voids of the air and the water with the birds and the fish, and so that they can live. God wants life in the emptiness, not just to be empty. And He doesn't just create the animals to just be there. He gave them a purpose for procreation and keeping to their kind. They had a purpose. I believe it was also to add more beauty and 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 artistic value, if you will, to nature. Some of the animals are rather awesome. And some of them make us ponder. And some of us just make us wonder. In fact, I, I saw it recently, and, and I have to agree with this. You know, I I think I've already shared I I Bigfoot is the one thing I wonder if maybe it's true. But also, someone proposed this, that so many people you know, downplay the idea of a unicorn ever existing, but we don't have any problems with a giraffe, which is kind of this camel-leopard hybrid thing with a seven-foot neck. A little weird, but we can't imagine a horse with a horn, and that's it. That's <laughs> a horse with a horn. If God can make this, why, why would we limit him on that? Uh, we know of some of our other extinct animals that are rather fascinating and sometimes a little odd. In other words, God is unlimited in his creative imagination. That's the point, and it's all good. Speaking of nature, when we think of when God says it's good, that means that nature is in harmony with itself. We don't have mosquitoes biting to suck blood and to give disease. We don't have rabbits afraid of hawks. We don't have the antelope afraid of crocodiles or dogs afraid of humans or squirrels afraid of dogs. The fear, the tension, the care for survival that we see in nature today just didn't exist. When Isaiah talks about how the lion will lay with the lamb and the child will play by the, by the adder's, the snake's nest, that tells us of a future harmony again inside of nature. At, at the beginning, there was this harmony. I mean, can you just, in your imagination, picture all the birds and the beasts and the bugs and the fish all getting along? That's goodness, as God declares. What else is it when things are good and very good? 
Well, we are going to get to next Sabbath, the creation of mankind. And I would like to propose that when God made man in his image, that was one significant element of going from good to very good. The rest of creation was not made in the image of God. The rest of creation was there, but ultimately God had a plan for a being created after his own image to then be his steward over the rest of creation. And because that is an amazing and awesome thing to make, that, that's the crowning act of creation. So you go from good to very good with the introduction of humanity. Well, good and very good with humanity, what does that come what does that bring to mind? What do we think of with human relationships that are good or very good? How many of us have ever had a, a person-to-person relationship that was perfect? Without a lie, without a deceit, without a backstabbing, without a manipulation, without emotional molding, without physical harm, without... Fill in the blank. I'm, I am so jaded by the negative relationships I've had over my brief years on this earth. I start out skeptical. I don't like that about me. I don't like that about our society. But when I'm meeting someone new and when they're meeting me for the first time, I actually think that it's commonplace for all humans to start skeptical. Are you going to hurt me or are we going to have a good relationship? That wasn't the case with our earliest parents. When Adam and Eve were created, they were in harmony with each other. They didn't argue over toilet seats, or towels being folded correctly. They didn't wonder how the resources were going to be spent and was someone a spender and someone a saver. They they weren't concerned with, well, today is chore day, or you're sleeping in too much, or you're not giving me enough attention, or, or loving me. There wasn't any of that. There was no fear that's that some human was going to harm the other, there wasn't, there wasn't a bad relationship with Adam and Eve. It was perfect. It was good. It was ethical. It was loving. And it was in harmony with each other. They didn't desire to be alone from one another. That's good. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Finally, what what does it mean to be good when God declares it good? Well, nature was in harmony. Purpose was, was presented and filled. Humans were in a good relationship with each other and with nature. Men weren't afraid of the tigers or the crocodiles, and they weren't afraid of man. But I would say at the top of all of that was good, everything was in harmony with its creator. 
all the things were good with God, if you will. Nature responded to its creator. He only had to speak, and it was. I can almost, I can almost see God helping or being there with Adam and in, in maybe forming some vines or shaping something for his first home. We know that, that the animals were brought to Adam so that he could name them. There was this, this good relationship. We know that they walked together in the cool of the evening. I'm getting, jumping forward a little because when God comes to find them after the fall, it's almost as if he was expecting them to greet him. And he has to call out, where are you? But it wasn't that way in the beginning. Man and woman could be in the presence of their perfect, holy creator, and they didn't die, and they weren't in fear, and they didn't tremble, and they didn't fall to the ground, they didn't run and hide, they didn't clothe themselves, they didn't make excuses for their actions and their words. All was good between them and God. All was good. But what happened? What happened? My next, my my other introduction um, makes me think of, I think of art and architecture. Our buildings and our paintings and our sculptures throughout history. I'm, I'm a fan. I'm not artistic. God did not bless me with that ability, but I appreciate others who have it. Uh, the mu- music and and other creative aspects to him. I love it. Love it. I especially like art and architecture from like the Gothic era, the Reformation era, some of, some of the Greek and, and Roman kind of uh, buildings and so on. But I'm really a fan of, you know, the 13 to 16 or 1700s, somewhere in there. Really like it. I like the big Victorian homes. I like the tall spires. Some of my favorite old churches are the more Gothic style where they've they've got the spires that just go way past the roof of the building. And it wasn't until recent years I learned that that was necessary because of the physics of how up they built them, how vertical the buildings were. The physics necessitated the spires to go even higher to maintain the outward pressure from these tall buildings. Again, I, I don't know exactly how it works, but I like it. And then you go on the inside of the buildings, and, and ceilings were painted, and it took years to complete the craft. And you had, you had statues that showed men and women just in a good, healthy form. And you can go through the Reformation era, and you can see paintings, and if you know what you're looking for, you can determine if the artist of the paintings was either Catholic or Protestant. Because the paintings had theology on them. Some of them were just of Balaam and his talking donkey, or the lady at the well, or Jonah, or or others. But what they would do is on the borders around the side of it, they would depict Protestant or Catholic doctrines in smaller images. Some of them rather specific. Some Catholic paintings had well-known depictions of a Protestant reformer 
with a dunce cap and, and devils tormenting him, because that's what they viewed of them. On some of the Protestant pictures, they did the opposite, but with popes or cardinals. Or they would have a little picture about sola scriptura, or sola fide, something like that. It's very beautiful. I, I, I look at the Monets and the Van Goghs, and I, and I just... I am in awe of what it is to take all those shades of paint or acrylic or pencil or something and just, wow, the depth and the emotion comes through. But then we get to contemporary art, and my opinion changes rather drastically. I find most modern art extremely ugly and unattractive. I find that a lot of the creative abilities seem to have fallen away in favor of trying to make a statement with something ugly. So you have things like a banana and duct tape, and it's just stuck to a wall with a little nameplate under it, and they call it art. I call it the beginning of a compost pile. And then what's even more amazing to me is after some days had gone by and the banana had gotten more spottled and mushy, someone paid money to buy it and then eat it as an act of living art. I find that rather unbeautiful, if you will. Other, other things is, is, you know, contemporary art that come to my mind. We have the famous blank canvas. It's just white. They just hang it. Well, what is that? Well, whatever you want to have it be, just tell me what you see. I think it's lazy. I think, I think art should show something, and it should be what the artist wants to show. I actually don't think that the onlooker gets to decide what art is. It should be from the other way around. Some of it gets into the rather grotesque, for example, in, I believe it was a a studio in New York, someone had a commode that they had painted on the inside of the American flag, and it was closed off, but people could get to it, and the reason it was closed off was because it was intended to, again, be a living piece of art. People were asked and encouraged to use the commode, like people do as a way of showing their distaste for the United States of America. I find that grotesque. I don't find that beautiful. What I find is that as as society, and we can talk specifically about our culture, as our culture more and more and more gets away from God, then what happens is a deterioration in beauty, a deconstruction of the good down to either nothing or the perverse. You get away from purpose and order and beauty and grandeur and uplifting thoughts and you get more into the dirt and the muck and the mire. Well, we know that though God made everything good and beautiful and moral and in its proper place, it didn't stay that way for long. We don't know how long, but time passed, and at some point, 
first the woman, then the man ate something they shouldn't have, and sin came into this world. And from that point forward, all the things changed. One, the first thing that changed was the relationship between man and God. Then we hid, then we covered, then we lied, then we blamed, then we all of that. Then we know that uh, the ground and the plants, all of a sudden we've got thorns and thistles, less beautiful. They're acting outside of their order. You can just look around and see how animals are no longer in harmony. We can think of what sin has done in our world. In the beginning, there was no sin. It was good and very good, and it was a world without sin. And then in between, a hot mess, a dumpster fire, death and deception and crime and pain and tears and loss. And it's been awful. I don't like it. I don't like how many news stories we hear of people losing their lives or helicopters crashing and having people we know personally. I don't like hearing the stories of trains being derailed and a whole city plus some being affected. I don't like hearing about slave trade still going on and human trafficking and drug trafficking to the the abuse and death of hundreds of thousands in our own country breaks my heart. It's difficult to not become desensitized, but as I have studied the beauty and the wonder and the grandeur of the world that was before sin, I become more sad about the world we live in today. Because, oh, if only it had stayed the way God made it. If only. Like any good book, though, you have a good, strong beginning and a good, strong end. God's book has a good, strong beginning and a good, strong end. The book ends of the Bible from Genesis 1 and 2 to Revelation 21 and 22 give us the good Beginnings and the good end. I'd invite you to turn with me to Revelation 21. Since this is the end of the book of Revelation, we know that the Lamb that was slain has been revealed. We know that the 144,000 have been counted. We know that seals have been broken and read. We know trumpets have been blown. We know beasts 1 and 2 have been revealed and have done their mighty and awful works. We know that the woman and the dragon are, have been united. We know that God's wrath has been poured out. We also know that Babylon falls and all the institutions that have aligned themselves with her. We know that by the time we get to Revelation 21, if you have read any of these chapters, and if you haven't, I encourage you to. Revelation's a good book. Difficult at times, but read it. Revelation 18 and 19, they tell us they tell us of 
and 20. They tell us of the fall of all that is bad, everything that we have lived through from Genesis 3 through our time today and going on into the future. We've read about the defeat of Satan and and the saints of God in heaven for a millennia. We've read about the final judgment as the wicked have surrounded the holy city. We have read about all the bad and the ugly coming to an end. And then what do we read in Revelation 21? Then I saw, verse 1, a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. That first heaven and earth, that's, that's what we know today. There are theories out there that propose we're currently on a second. That doesn't bear out when you read this verse. Our second is yet to come. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place or the tabernacle of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. We go back to a human-God harmony once again. And then we read, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. In the beginning, when God created, it was good and very good. In the end, when God recreates, I I believe that God will again declare over it that it is good and very good. Good. I'm ready for it, my friends. I am. But we don't get there without one more good in between. Today we are celebrating, we are participating in the communion service. We do this because it brings to mind that good in between the beginning and the end. When Jesus Christ condescended to this earth in human form and became a servant for us, as a babe born in a manger, lowly and without any real claim to the status of the human social ladder, he lived the life Adam should have, and he died the death that we all deserve. Every one of us has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are all, in our own way, the bad and the ugly. All of us. And we've experienced it from others. It is only because of the broken body and the spilled blood of the perfect Lamb of God that you and I have hope in the end That is good and very good. It is because Christ, as he ministered, showed the Father to humanity. 
and, and spoke of the love of God and demonstrated it without regard to peoples or languages or how others viewed your social status. See, God is no respecter of people, and when Christ took on the sins, he didn't only take on the sins of the elect or those that God arbitrarily favored or the ones that God kind of liked a little more than someone else. When Christ took on the sins before his sacrifice, it was for everyone, fully, holy, and complete. That sacrifice was so sufficient that any person that has ever lived can claim it as theirs. It is because of his sacrifice that we can claim today the assurance, the hope, the promise of the end that is good and very good. We need this to bridge the gap between the bookends. Because without our Messiah, we don't have a hope beyond this bad and ugly world. I praise God for this. I claim this. Each morning, and, and you have to do this for yourself, people can't do it for you, and being a part of this church doesn't make it automatic in your lives. You have to accept Christ's sacrifice on your behalf singularly. And it's not because you feel good about it, or it brings, and it should bring a smile to your face, and you should feel good about it. But even when you don't, you claim it by faith. I don't feel it, but it's mine. God has said so, and so it is. You hang on to it. And every morning you claim it again and again and again. So that way when you come before God, when you enter into His presence, when you lift up your voice in praise, thanksgiving, and petition, again, you can know that you are in a right harmony with your Creator and your Redeemer. We celebrate, we participate, we, we do this in remembrance of him who gave all for you, as if you were the only one that ever lived. Our communion service and, and our foot washing beforehand, all of it brings to mind the sacrifice of heaven. The foot washing tells us of a baptism, the death and the resurrection one of Christ and two of you and I as the old dying away and the new being recreated in him. The foot washing is a, a miniature baptism. You don't, we don't have to get fully immersed every single time. We, we, we wouldn't do that. But the foot washing is, is that. It is also an act of humble service. If Christ our Lord can take off his nicer clothing and gird himself in a servant's wrap, and then kneel down on the floor and wash dirty, dusty, worn and calloused feet of his apostles. That sets an example for us today. We don't have a hierarchy in this church when it comes to service and love, and the foot washing service reminds us of that.
If Christ can do it, we certainly can too. And then as we partake of the bread and the juice, we remember Christ's broken body and his spilled blood for us. And we declare that sacrifice until he comes again, every time we do it. This is not a sad moment, my friends. We rejoice in knowing that Christ gave all for us, and we have the hope and the assurance of salvation in him. If you need to search your heart before you take of the bread, say your prayer between now and then. Search your heart a little bit in the next handful of moments before we come back in. So when we do participate in this, we can cry out, praise God for the lamb that was slain. And we can smile and we can hold our heads up knowing that God will declare us good and very good in Jesus' name.